Graham Taylor, then England manager, was asked by FA Suits not to play any more than three black players at a time. Now, he didn't comply with that, but that was what he was told, and that's from the FA hierarchy. Hello and welcome to Football Stories, a podcast that seeks to tell some of the more interesting tales from the beautiful game. It's not always about the big names in football. Sometimes it's about the people who you don't know much about. And that is what this series of the podcast is looking to focus on. Today's guest is Emmy Anura, an author and lecturer who specializes in issues relating to race within sport. He's also the brother of former Sheffield United and Huddersfield player and ex-Ethiopian national team manager, Ifi Anura. Now, I recorded many of these podcasts in October of 2020, which was in the UK Black History Month, and followed on from a much larger conversation in the national media about race and racism, not only in sport, but also in society following the death of George Floyd. Our conversation focuses on race in football, but we do discuss the Black Lives Matter movement and the decision of the Premier League for all players to take the knee before kickoff in games. A decision that is proved surprisingly to me quite controversial in some quarters we're also going to talk about emmy's book that's pitch black the story of black british footballers some of the challenges that black footballers have faced down the years and his feelings towards governing bodies and how they've been tackling racism in football down the years this for me was a really eye-opening chat i hope you enjoy it emmy anura is the author thanks for having me you're very welcome i want to start off by talking about your book it was called pitch black published a couple of years ago what is it that made you want to write a book chronicling the history of black football players? Quite simply, there hadn't been one. So that was one of the uh, you know principal reasons as to why I wanted to write the book that hadn't been what I'd describe as a kind of definitive history mm. of black footballers. There's been some great books written about the whole history of black footballers from the beginning of the professional era. But I suppose... Um, the other reason why I wanted to wanted to write the book was because I think at the time I wrote it, which was about which at the time it was published, which was twenty fifteen, mm. the issues around the Rooney Rule and about black footballers going into coaching and management yeah. was really becoming crystallised. It was about the, you know, the campaign had been waging for about ten fifteen years at that particular point, and one of the frustrations, I suppose, from my perspective, was that. Football was telling itself that actually we'd uh, moved on from the dark days of the 80s and 90s. So, well, not so much the 90s, but the 70s and 80s. There was a kind of narrative that said, we don't want to go back to those days. Football's great now. It was bad in the 70s and 80s, but now it's you know a kind of melting pot of black footballers from the UK and from all over the world who come to the Premier League to play. And what I wanted to do was just actually challenge that narrative and that perspective a little bit by documenting some of the the struggles some of the incidents some of the events and the processes that kind of led us to this stage it was almost as if people dis- kind of felt that i actually what had happened was that all of a sudden football had become or football fans or football itself the game had just suddenly overnight become enlightened and actually what i wanted to demonstrate was that the driver for that enlightenment had been produced by players, mm. activists. When I say activists, I specifically mean fan groups. Had been the catalyst for many of the changes that had taken place. And without their contribution, we'd still be in the place where we are in the 70s and 80s, undoubtedly. I guess a book that charts the history of black footballers isn't automatically 
going to be a book that also charts the history and development of racism in football. But I guess at the same time, those things are always going to go hand in hand. Was that your expectation when you started out writing the book, that it was going to be focused on the challenges and focused on the racist element of it? I I really didn't know any other way to kind of write it. I could have, Mm. I suppose there's two ways of approaching a particular book like that. On one hand, you could have written about, you know, the first black player to play for Team X or Team Y, and talk and, and done it in a kind of very straightforward biographical manner. But that's ignoring but half me, the story, and, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to me, those books are great. They're they're valid, and they're actually there's one that's been produced very recently, a hundred black pioneers, where somebody has painstakingly gone and found mm. the first black player to play for every single professional club. It's a great piece wow. of work, actually. But those in themselves are, are, are really valid. But what I wanted to do was to actually talk about the development of footballs and demonstrate that actually these things don't happen in isolation. These, don't, these things mirror what is going on in society and what is happening in wider society as well. So just the mere fact that the majority were black players started to come into the professional game in really big numbers coincided with the Windrush generation, the sons of the Windrush generation growing up and becoming adults. One of the things I also wanted to document was that much of the racism, some of the more extreme examples of racism that occurred at the time, particularly in the 70s and 80s, occurred at a time where the far right were on the rise and were gaining, you know, an electoral presence as well. So for me, it was very, it was a it was a simple thing. These things kind of go hand in hand. You can't divorce the experiences and the story, if you like, of black footballers without placing them into some kind of social context. So the approach I had was really what was going on within the country and within black communities at the time, and what and how did those developments mirrored the experience of black footballers. So, for example, there are instances where, you know, Cyril Regis, Brendan Batson and Laurie Cunningham have to face, have to come, come away from Ellen Road and get on their coach. And actually, wantlets of far-right fans who spit at them, throw things at them, throw banana, you know, abuse them and so on and so forth. It seems unreal, actually, mm. or surreal, more likely. That uh, that kind of thing would happen to footballers just going about playing the game, going about the you know playing their trade. But they're the experiences that had and that occurred at a time when there was a particular organised far right following who used football as a vehicle to recruit, demonstrate, and raise their profile. It's interesting you mention how the experience of these players goes hand in hand with the social situation at the time, particularly when you reflect that back onto the situation we find ourselves in today. I want to talk about that a little bit further in a moment. Obviously, your book and your experiences that you write about focused on professional football and your brother, if he was a footballer of some note, playing for Sheffield United and Huddersfield and Swindon, to name but a few. But I suppose the experiences of racism in the game aren't just something that's exclusive to professional football. Is it something that you've had experience of personally in your in your footballing life? Absolutely. I played, uh, you know, grassroots and professional football, representative leagues, grassroots Sunday league football as well. I played quite extensively uh, into me, I suppose, into me, um, into me late 20s, I suppose. Away from the scrutiny that was there within the professional game, 
the grassroots game in many cases was just like the Wild West in terms of racism. Anything went. There were no sanctions. There were no there was nobody to say it, so there was nobody to report it. The, the, the reporting systems were virtually instant. Players, teams, clubs were forced to take the situation into their own hands. I'm talking physical assaults to, to, you know, physical abuse and so on and so forth. So I just remember on a personal level when I, you know, just playing, growing up, the inevitable, you know, you'd go in for a 50-50 challenge. The first thing somebody remembers is the colour of your skin. Uh, you know, uh, you, you, you miss time a tackle. The first thing somebody remembers is the colour of your skin. The experience at grassroots level was in many ways much worse than in than in the professional game, because to some degree within the professional game, footballers were were protected. Mm. So you might have you might I mean it's, it sounds bizarre to say footballers were protected. You might have forty thousand people chanting racist abuse as you go on about your job, um, but in terms of feeling threatened or being physically physically challenged, then. Most professional footballers didn't experience that and were protected in that sense. That's not necessarily the case in the grassroots game. If you're a football fan, you're aware of racism in the sport. If you've ever been to a football game, you'll be aware of racism from the terraces towards the players. And that's been something that's been present in the game, as you say, for decades now. But what I wasn't necessarily aware of, maybe slightly naively, was that players throughout history, black players, were subject to racism from teammates from managers, from governing bodies. Pretty much it was from every side. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, in terms of the kind of narrative that, uh, that I talked about earlier, there's a, there's a tendency to lay the blame, the sole blame for racism in football on fans mm-hmm. because it helps. It helps the kind of narrative of football, that football's this kind of melting pot. But the problem is, is the fans, they're uncontrollable. And it's the fans predominantly who who are the catalyst for the kind of football's tribalism and mm. uh, they fuel football's tribalism by and large and so we, it, it's, it helps the kind of narrative to suggest that racism is solely a problem of football fans and, and if only football fans would behave themselves racism would go away well that's kind of not the case really it's quite it's quite clear from the research and from the interviews that i did with ex-professionals that lots of them faced a lot of racism from teammates. That actually, the, well, actually, well, actually, it was fairly common. It wasn't an aberration. It wasn't just one or two in, incidents. It's quite. It was quite common to be dressed up as kind of football banter. Right. It was quite common for black footballers to be abused by their own teammates and and it to be dressed up as football banter. It was quite common for managers and coaches to indulge in that kind of behaviour as well. There are cases of out-and-out racist bullying. And in some ex- more extreme cases, in the book, for example, I document the case of Paul Cannaville. Paul Cannaville's case, Paul Cannaville is a ex-Chelsea player, the first black player to play for Chelsea, for people who are unaware. Mm. Paul Cannaville fa- faced, from my understanding and my research, probably the most extreme forms of racism of any professional during that particular era. There's not many footballers who faced such hostility and death threats from their own fans. But also, he was racially abused by one of his teammates, as a result of which him and the teammate had a fight. 
and uh, his teammate was allowed to stay and poor Cannaville was the one who was sold. So there are lots of examples of these kind of incidents going on. A core part of the experience of black footballers was having to negotiate, not the, not just the crowd, which was one thing, but actually the dressing room, which was another thing. So negotiating and managing the issues, the racism, very crude kind of racism that occurred within the game itself. Then also, alongside the racist abuse from fellow professionals, you also got the, the racial stereotypes that were attached to black footballers. So you can't play in the cold. You know, a wet Wednesday in Stoke, they'd go missing. They can only play out on the wing. You can't play them in central, in centre midfield, in the engine room because they're not to be trusted. When you need some brains and some common sense and some bottle, and for somebody to take the game by the scruff of the neck, you need white players to do that. All of those stereotypes, plus the kind of banter they say in inverted commas that went on, that all black footballers at the time had to navigate. Obviously, you spoke to a load of professionals. You name-checked a few there. Some of the best players of their generation, like Sir Viv Anderson and Cyril Regis and John Barnes. From the outside in, and I speak from a position of male-white privilege, so I'm, I'm the last person who should be judging this, but it looks from the outside in that these attacks, the racist insults, are kind of like water of a duck's back. But when you speak to these players... Does it affect them? Can you tell that there's, there's battle scars there, that they still bear the, bear the impact of these attacks? Absolutely, yeah. I think, I, th- I think at the time, footballers were forced to say that it was water off a duck's back. Black footballers were forced to adopt the kind of British stiff upper lip mm. kind of attitude towards the racist, racism that they suffered. And we're expected to kind of grin and bear it. And there weren't really any other options available to them. There was no kick it out. There was no show races in the red card. There were none of the other anti-racism campaigns. There were no national newspapers where you had even the odd journalist who would be a kind of champion of the rights of black footballers. So in that sense, black footballers, in terms of the way that in which they suffer, suffered racism, were really isolated. And the only, the only narrative open to them was... Yeah, this is, it's kind of water off a duck's back. They even said, I use it to inspire me, and so on and so forth. And undoubtedly for some footballers, all of that is true. But some footballers also told me that actually, if you're winning a game and you're getting lots of racist abuse from your away fans, it's great. It's kind of, you know, you know sticking it to the away fans that you're, that you're, you know, you're, that you're winning a game and the away fans are giving you abuse. But if you're losing... If your team's losing and you're getting racist abuse, then you can hear every word, you can hear every every comment. Mm. We always remember the time that Eric Cantona was facing xenophobic abuse and mm. jumped at Crystal Palace and jumped into the crowd to attack a Crystal Palace fan. I mean, those kind of incidents, there are instances where those kind of incidents occurred in the 70s and 80s with black footballers actually coming to blows with fans who were abusing them, but in nearly all cases though these things weren't reported and then there are undoubtedly other people who came into the game struggled to deal with the kind of racist abuse they suffered and drifted out the game as a result and we don't know how many of those people that are we've no idea how many potentially good football careers were ruined because of racism and the actual lack of an infrastructure to support black footballers I was actually going to ask you that, whether there are any examples you found of players who had their careers either curtailed or ended or they walked away of the game because of racism. I mean, Jack Leslie's probably the 
story that most people are familiar with, who should have been the first black player to play for England, got selected, was playing for Plymouth Argyle, but then when the selectors found out he was black, he was mysteriously dropped from the squad. I mean, those stories, are they rife within professional football down the years? You know, in the book, it documents some of those instances. So, for example, even with the England team, Graham Taylor, then England manager, was asked by FA Suits not to play any more than three black players at a time. Now, he didn't comply with that, but that was what he was told, and that's from the FA hierarchy. There's also the incidents of it's an ex-player called Richie Moran who left, who walked away from the game because of the racist abuse he suffered. He just wanted no part of it. So in a sense, his career was certainly curtailed. Anecdotally, there were others. The people I interviewed mentioned friends of theirs, as talented as they were, if not more so, who they grew up with, who they might have played in similar teams to, but were unable to... Well, just decided, well, why should I play in an environment, such a hostile, racist environment? This is just not something that I want to do. I'll go and choose a career in something else. It's quite appropriate to talk to you now, Amy, because of the recent action that we've seen in the Premier League, the support of the Black Lives Matter movement, players taking the knee before kickoff, which is obviously something that started over in the US and has come to the UK. Undoubtedly, things like this have helped raise awareness of the issue and the challenges that black athletes and black communities face. But at the same time, it's surfaced some pretty objectionable views from some football fans and almost given them a platform or given them a voice is it a bit of a double-edged sword? I I think fundamentally what's happened after the last few over the last few months has been a source of good, to be perfectly honest. And I say that with quali- with some qualifications, which I'll kind of explain later. But I think the raising of awareness has been a good thing. The idea that footballers have taken a stand over issues of social justice and equality is a positive thing. I think also that the fact that young and and not and you know I, I'm keen to I'm keen to point out that not all footballers are millionaires. Uh, it's only at the top end of the game that that's the case. But young, relatively well rewarded, financially rewarded young men who aren't supposed to be interested in social issues have actually decided to kind of take a stance and uh, and get involved in things. And it's and it's also true. Because I know, I know that all the captains of all the Premier League clubs over the lockdown period all got together regularly to discuss these issues and to formulate some kind of response to it. So, and you know, Troy Deeney, Tyrone Mings were, I think, the only two. Might have been, there might be someone else were the only two captains who were black. The vast majority of the captains, anyway, who took part in that were white, and so out of that has emerged. A lot of positive things in my book. I, I just think inevitably, small-minded people are going to just feel threatened. Really, people who feel threatened by a footballer taking a knee to support an extra, you know, in opposition to an extrajudicial killing, probably inadequate to be honest. And there's not really much more I want to kind of say about them. To be honest, <laughs> they don't really deserve the kind of oxygen of publicity that they're craving for and they should be marginalized those Mm. people to be perfectly honest they have nothing to contribute they're not really uh, helping the situation they're a barrier to the situation it's a shame that we have to talk about them because there are just much more relevant issues to Mm. to discuss to be honest haters are always going to hate and people 
are always going to find reasons to get angry about nothing over. The latest news about your team. The biggest stories from your terraces. The most exciting moments from your week. Forget the clickbait and listen to real fans bringing you real news every single day from the Premier League. Listen and subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts by searching Football Social Daily. Where are we now? You mentioned earlier the Rooney rule and the United States uh-huh. and the yeah. the lack of BAME footballers that are making the progression from playing staff into maybe the managerial or coaching side of the game. It's interesting you mentioned as well that only two of the Premier League captains involved in the talks around the BLM protests were black because that's not an even representation when you consider the amount of black players that are playing in the Premier League. So from that point of view, I guess it feels like there's still a long way to go. There is still a long way to go. And the big issue, I suppose, is kind of leadership. And you're touching on the issues of leadership and captains are leaders. Mm. And one of the one of the issues that emerges is that there's a saying that black players are fit to play but not fit to lead. And it, and it harks back to some of the stereotypes I mentioned earlier where, you know, they don't have black players in the kind of engine room at the side. They don't have black players to take responsibility. Um, I suppose la- lazy is kind of the, lazy's the current lazy's big, very yeah, common, lazy's isn't it? Lazy is definitely another very common one, yeah, very common one. Uh, it even happens with, I've, I've heard on more than one occasion, you know, um, strikers like Lukaku being described as lazy. Benteke, Carton Cole, I've heard. Benteke, Carton Cole. There's a pattern here. I'm, I'm struggling, I'm really struggling to think of a white striker who's who's classed as lazy. I'm really struggling to think of a of a of a white striker who's who's considered lazy, and, when, and there's plenty of black footballers as well. So these these stereotypes and these characteristics that we ascribe to black people and black footballers specifically are still around and still exist because the system that props them up hasn't been dismantled. And so therefore, what you have is a notion of who is a good leader. What do we want from a leader? We always think of a captain as someone who can galvanise, who can galvanise somebody and motivate other people. And footballers, you know, at the professional level, footballers represent some 30% of the professional game. And yet there are three, possibly four captains out of 20 clubs. So the issue is the question of who we perceive as being leaders. And that also speaks to the idea that Black footballers are kind of prevented from staying within the industry and getting opportunities to coach and manage when the playing careers are all all over. And so, what you find is footballers are black footballers are almost commodified. They're good to play, but as soon as we've as soon as they've retired from playing, they experience that you know twenty thirty you know that twenty year experience of playing football is no longer worthwhile. There's a real issue there around what we perceive as leadership and and why it is that only white players are considered as potentially good leaders. How do you feel about where the sport is right now when you look at the challenges that face black individuals involved in the sport? I mean, again, from the outside looking in, it feels like, and you mentioned how football kind of imitates society sometimes. And across Europe, we're seeing a rise of far-right politics. And in football, it seems that 
we're seeing an increase in incidents in Italy. We're seeing an increase in incidents in the Premier League as well. Is uh, is it just that there's more awareness of this stuff or are we slowly stepping back to the bad old days? I mean, I think context is kind of everything. Different countries have different responses. I mean, we, we think here in the UK that, uh, or here in England in particular, our, our far-right problem was much worse than anything Spain or Italy or any of those other countries you mentioned had at the time. It was far worse than, than, than kind of those incidents, in the, you know, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. What happened and what changed, what changed was actually a, a, a particular challenge to the far-right from fan groups. So it was fan groups themselves coming together to challenge the narrative of the far right and to demonstrate and to protest against them and to marginalise them from football. And it was only at that point that the far right did become marginalised and the authorities, the football authorities, began to take notice and put in measures as well to prevent things from happening. And then, you know, as, as, as a result, legislation came in and better stewarding came in and so on to prevent this kind of thing taking place within grounds. Much of the far-right activity doesn't occur within grounds now. It occurs online. And so there's still quite a far-right presence that is online. And something similar needs to happen online. There needs Mm. to be fan groups taking concerted action to marginalise online far-right groups and to put pressure on the likes of Twitter, Facebook, all the other social media platforms to take action against far-right groups. I think, you know, so to kind of answer your question about far-right in in a European context, I think that, you know, something similar needs to kind of happen. I think think other fan groups need to, for want of a better word, take the bull by the horns and and do their own kind of protest against them. And also, I think, players as well have got a very powerful voice. And it'd be great to see more fan groups support their own players in kind of challenging some of these narratives. And then clubs as well. Why clubs pay too much lip service to some of these groups is kind of beyond me. But if you've got a multi-million pound player who walks off the pitch because they're being racially abused, why aren't you protecting your kind of investments and your assets? Why are you allowing fans to dictate the performance or influence the performance of um, of one of your prized assets, let alone, you know, the kind of whole moral issue about the, the right to be free from abuse and discrimination. So, you know, lots of clubs and lots of football authorities need to t- kind of step up. And I think what's happened in the UK, we've had that tradition of organisations like Kick It Out, who've been able to put pressure on the football authorities to take action and Unfortunately, in many European countries, that simply hasn't happened. There hasn't been a concerted effort. And if you hear some of the things, the pronouncements that are made by different FAs, not to mention UEFA and FIFA, who are the leading bodies of the game, if UEFA and FIFA took a zero-tolerance approach rather than just stated a zero-tolerance approach and and activated that zero-tolerance approach, would be much further down the line and these things are much more likely to be aberrations than than features. Don't forget FIFA disbanded their racism group a couple of years ago. They because the job was done. <laughs> because the job was done. I mean that's amazing from FIFA how a group of <laughs> how a tiny group of individuals can solve the problem of racism not just in football but in 
society as well. Um, <laughs> and that's something that they should share actually with the <laughs> with the rest of the world as a kind of blueprint for how how we go about these things. Well, it sounds like we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. So yeah, any... it, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to suggest that actually, you know, the situation hasn't changed at all. Of course, it's changed, but there is still a, a kind of long way to go. You know, one of the points that are made in in the book is that the period where the book first starts, which is from about the 1970s, at the time there were very few black supporters, there were very few black referees, very few referees or officials, very few black journalists, very few commentators, 40, 50 years on. That's still the case. The only thing that has changed is footballers are now allowed to play without racist abuse. And that suggests to me that football hasn't necessarily made the gains around racism that it often claims for itself. Amy, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Your book, Pitch Black, the story of black British footballers, is available anywhere that you find books, I assume. But if you get it on Amazon now, it's got a few quid off the hardback edition as well, I notice. Um, Amy, pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for talking to us on Football Stories. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much to Emmy for taking the time to speak to me. You can get Pitch Black in loads of places online, not just Amazon. A fascinating book, and there's also a Twitter account you can follow that's attached to that, at Pitch Black Book. Make sure you check out the other interviews in this series, including chats with former Arsenal physios, Gary and Colin Lewin. There's a chat with Mark Halsey, the ex-Premier League referee, and a really interesting conversation I had with Kieran Maguire. He's the man behind Price of Football, about some of the murkier sides of football finance click subscribe to this podcast now so you never miss an episode you get the rest of the series and you'll get season two when it's out in the new year thank you very much for listening football stories is a sports social production and part of the sports social podcast network hosted and produced by jim salverson with additional production support and imaging from ant mcginley find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk Sports Social Podcast Network.